Hello, welcome to the No Man's Land podcast. I'm here with Steve O'Neill and Akash Pound. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Martin. Welcome, Akash. Thank you. So, Akash, um, today has been quite an eventful day in parliamentary politics. Can you please explain exactly what's going on? I will do my best. <laughs> so, yes, just this morning, I think we were discussing what we might uh, discuss on this podcast. And um, I made the point to you, um, not really much is, is happening this week. Maybe actually uh, we'll have more to say in, in a week or two when Parliament's back. But obviously today's been a, uh, another very dramatic day. Um, there's been speculation um, about this for a few weeks, but I think it still came as, in the end, a bit of a shock um, that the government had formally requested a prorogation, so a suspension of Parliament. Um, from the Queen, and obviously as per convention, the Queen acted on the advice of the Prime Minister. I think there was a bit of sort of excitable commentary about whether the Queen might say no and ride to the rescue of of democracy, which would be slightly odd for various reasons. But no, um, of course, the the, the Prime Minister's desire was was granted, and so we are going to see um, one more week Maybe, maybe a maximum of two more weeks um, of part this parliament or this parliamentary session uh, sitting. The the the, the, the order uh, for the prorogation says that it will it will happen um, between the 9th and the twelfth of September. It's quite interesting, actually. There isn't a fixed date yet, um, but so there'll be a bit more time for for parliament to sit. Um, it'll then be suspended for the conference recess, as expected. Um, it will come back in the middle of October, on the 14th of October, with a new Queen's speech, um, by which time, presumably, the Prime Minister hopes to um, either have renegotiated uh, the withdrawal agreement or to have a, a, a confirmed position that we're going to press ahead with, with Brexit with, with, without a deal. Um, and that will be put to, to Parliament along with other domestic policy plans. So what are the implications of the government's request being uh, granted by the Queen? Is this the first step towards fascist dictatorship in Britain? Is this business as usual? Uh, What are the real implications of this for uh, parliamentary democracy in principle and the practice around especially Brexit? Right, so yes, I think a lot of people got somewhat carried away, shall we say, on on Twitter and and, uh, elsewhere in the media um, today. I mean, there's been talk of this being a some kind of fundamental attack on principles of parliamentary democracy. There's a tweet I have in front of me uh, by someone with a blue check mark on Twitter saying this stunt is straight out of 1930s Germany utterly inexcusably dictatorial and let's be honest that's absurd <laughs> that isn't what's going on uh, my view on this is it's a bit of a sneaky sly tactic by the government what it's going to mean is there'll be less opportunity for parliamentary debate for scrutiny and, and of, of whatever uh, whatever Boris's administration is doing in the meantime um, you know, in terms of renegotiations with, with Brussels or, or anything else. Um, but there is still time, if there's a parliamentary majority for it, uh, for a vote of no confidence in the government, 
possibly for um, legislation to be brought forward by the opposition parties with conservative rebels supporting them, um, either to compel the government to seek another extension uh, to the Article 50 process or potentially to do something more radical, even like holding a second referendum or something. In other words, if there's a parliamentary majority for a drastically different course of action, um, subject to constraints of parliamentary procedure and, and time being set aside for it, um, you know, that the, the, the government is not um, in dictatorial control of anything. The problem is, as has been the case ever since 2016, there's a majority against lots of things in Parliament, there isn't a majority in favour of anything, and the default is still that we leave with or without a deal at the moment without a deal on the 31st of October, so if nothing else happens, Parliament can't decide on anything else, that is what will happen. Is it too early at this stage to sort of work out what the plan, what the purpose behind this is, and what is to be gained by doing it? Well, I think um, probably, presumably, the government does calculate that having less time for Parliament to, to be in session in this period, uh, it will be to its advantage. Um, you know, there'll be less, less opportunity for the kind of uh, procedural battles and, and tricks that have, have become a, a feature of, of this Parliament. Um, you know, there'll be less opportunity for the Speaker to grant urgent questions and urgent debates for ministers to be summoned, just for those difficult questions to be asked, uh, for select committees to do their work as well. I mean, all of that kind of normal business of, of Parliament and the, 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 the scrutiny process um, will be put on, put on hold for those few weeks. And that's why, as I say, I think, I think the government is coming in, is rightly coming in for criticism for that reason, um, but it doesn't make it unconstitutional, illegal, dictatorial. Um, it's using its powers under the British Constitution as the executive to, um, to, 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 to prorogue Parliament, which is, which is a normal part of the parliamentary cycle. It's just very un unusual, of course, for it to happen um, in this context with this very, very pressing deadline approaching. Yeah, um, that's really, really helpful. Um, trying to think through um, what might be in the heads of Boris Johnson and his advisors at this point, um, uh, and looking at the options that the things that could happen on the back of this, is it seems to do three things. One, one is that Parliament would act to uh, legislate, say, a cash to uh, mandate an extension of Article 50. Um, one is that it might um, uh, bring down Johnson's government and vote their confidence. Another is, actually, it might accept the withdrawal agreement should he come back as one having managed to laugh and negotiate. Now, it's hard to judge, but I would guess that he would like the withdrawal agreement clearly would be advantageous to Johnson. He'd say, God, Brexit, done. Um, if he's failed by voting a confidence, um, he can go back in a very Dominic Cummings playbook way to the nation and say, I tried to Brexit, they stopped me, give me a mandate. That might be part of the thinking. The thing that is probably a bit more um, lukewarm perhaps to them is if Parliament kicks the can down the road. And what it, it does seem the case of reducing the kind of time Parliament has is it might make it more difficult for them to get act together and legislate to do that and kick the can down the road. So I'm wondering if some of the thinking is for Parliament either to accept what he comes back with if he does or to actually stop him decisively, which gives him something to hit them with in an election. 
Certainly in Boris Johnson's letter to MPs setting out his actions around probing Parliament, he mentioned the withdrawal agreement. There's been talk that the new Queen's speech will include, hopefully, or words that affect a withdrawal agreement. Now, all uh, a lot of parliamentarians have come out and said they will do anything within their power to um, prevent no deal, but this is where we're getting into meatloaf, no deal, anti-no dealers territory, where they will do anything to stop no deal, but they won't do that. That being anything from um, a government of national unity, a Corbyn premiership, a Brexit of any kind, a withdrawal agreement. It's certainly possible, I think, that Johnson has potentially manoeuvred it with his wording in the letter today to say that the um, potential for a deal is now in the hands of the European Union. He has made it reasonably clear to think that the backstop is the deal breaker. I think we can sort of all agree on that. But, um, in its current form, at least. In its current form. So if that um, is shifted, the EU, EU can see serious and they decide that actually um, politics is more important than the integrity of the single market and the customs union and the EU's rules, which I think would be out of uh, character for the EU. But nonetheless, if that happens, we could see a withdrawal agreement passed mid mid to late October and everything goes off without a hitch. That's, one, one, that's one optimistic scenario, I think, certainly. I mean, I suppose one question is, um, yeah, Boris is trying to now establish or get into the, you know, sort of public mind that it's now in the EU's court, so to speak. Is that a genuine negotiating tactic? Or is that just a matter of softening up public opinion for him to be able to blame the EU if what I expect to be the case, they say, no, we made it very clear, we've negotiated this long and hard, um, and there's the deal, take it or leave it. So, so, so then, in, in which case, he would then be able to um, place more palatably, you might think, for no deal. Well, I certainly think that a lot of the politics around this is primarily blame avoidance or blame shifting. So Boris Johnson and Theresa May before tried to shift all of the blame onto the EU. Um, it's to me, it seems odd that the people who seem to get away without blame are the people who voted against the withdrawal agreement, especially the people who voted to trigger Article 50 without any semblance of a plan and then voted against the withdrawal agreement. Now, oddly, something I think is not talked about enough is that all pro-European members of parliament, of which there are the majority, the withdrawal agreement is the EU's deal. It's been badged, and I think there's been a real failure of political communication that was badged as Theresa May's deal, not the government's deal, the country's deal, or from the pro-EU MP's point of view, the EU's deal. After all, they agreed to it, and if they said there's nothing else, it seems a slightly odd tension that the people who are most pro-EU are the ones voting against the um, the EU's proposed deal. But I suppose their rationale is to um, block Brexit at any cost. 
Yeah. And if that ends up with no deal, well, then they can blame someone else. And we go round and round while the country is whether burning, whether suffering food and medicine shortages, or in a minor inconvenience, you know, whichever mind you want to take, we can all blame each other and wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Well, I think it was a deal negotiated in good faith by the EU within the confines of red lines decided by Theresa May's government. Yeah, absolutely, which I think is a... I personally think she didn't necessarily read the referendum result wrong or bad. It was, you know, immigration was a large thing, sovereignty was a large factor. Her deal allow makes allowances for both of those within a sort of pragmatic solution and backstop is what happens if you can't come up with something else which I think is reasonable. I personally think a lot of the Conservatives who uh, the sort of anti-EU Conservatives won and maybe having some element of regret over the tactics they used that for them it was all about us low tax, you know, low regulation, buccaneering free Britain, never about anti-immigration and I think maybe they um, they were willing to do whatever it took to win and are now having some element of not necessarily regret but they might be trying to kid themselves that that's not what it was really about. Anyway, Steve, you wanted to say something. Uh, yeah, I was going to pick up on your, your point about, uh, I think you made quite a interesting distinction, which was uh, MPs are people that want to avoid no deal and MPs are others who want to remain somehow. Um, and, and you would act differently because like you say if, if no deal is the thing you're really, really worried about the easiest way out of it is to vote through a resort agreement um, the other way the other hard and far way out of it is to win a referendum and with, with Remain which obviously you've got to get a referendum through Parliament and then win it um, if you lose it that could be no deal as well so the easy way out of no deal is withdrawal agreement um, but if you really want to remain you have to go down a different route and that's where you get into all this talk there was uh, sort of a week or so ago about a government of national unity uh, as a way of stopping a Johnson government doing no deal and then getting to um, I think the Corbyn's plan was to hold an election uh, and then to um, campaign for a referendum or some other mechanism you know, other than other plans to get there but if you're looking to remain and are willing to risk no deal you're kind of going to go down that route potentially and work out a way to do it yeah, I mean, this is what it really comes down to, that the various trade-offs that MPs seem to have refused really to face or engage with is that there are various options, which is either to leave the European Union with a deal or without a deal. Every time that the majority of MPs have been presented with a deal, they've rejected it, and all the time that they've known that no deal is the default. So personally, I don't have a great deal of sympathy for it because if you have a legal default, then if you don't have something else, then you default to the default. It's almost like having a, a backstop, perhaps. But I think that's why the, the Gork and uh, Stewart and Hammond position is actually perfectly consistent. They've voted for the withdrawal agreement, they've campaigned for the withdrawal agreement, maybe the political communications around the withdrawal agreement that, be, that it could have been maybe a bit better and all sorts. But that's a perfectly consistent um, approach. What isn't consistent in my eyes is to, uh, to vote against everything and then expect something else to happen, which seems bizarre. But in terms of the government of national unity, how do you think that various parties involved should play this? Should the 
Lib Dems now vote back on their opposition to a Corbyn-led government of national unity. Um, how likely is it, given that he doesn't actually have the numbers? So, what do you think that some of the smaller parties should look at doing? Um, it's clearly difficult for all the parties because, yes, they're looking at what they want to avoid or what's to happen, i.e., the one no deal they want to make. They're also trying to do it in a way that is to their advantage of the vote. So, um, uh, the position said Joe Swinson came out with, which is to say, we rule out a Corbyn led government, but Harriet Harman or Ken Clark won't get support. Now, that might be something that's more realistic with parliamentary numbers, it's hard to say. Um, but what she doesn't want to do is allow Labour to seem like a party of Remain. I mean, Keir Starmer was trying to say they were the party of Remain the other day. Um, however, what she also doesn't want to do is let that get in the way of actually stopping no deal or, or look too opportunistic. So I think that's a really hard line to walk for Lib Dems. I know I've seen a lot of people on Twitter questioning whether um, the stance was too hard and should have been a little bit leaving the door open for Corbyn. I know it's the SNP took more that line. They were, yes, they were saying perhaps a Corbyn-led government national unity wasn't the right one, but we're open to anything to avoid a disaster. Um, I, think it, I think it's a hard one. I think possibly the SNP line might be a little bit smarter than the one that it comes to. I think it's all about, again, trade-offs, isn't it? Which is worse, the possibility of a Corbyn-led government or the possibility of no deal? And um, as someone once said that it's all very well to be pro having a cake and pro eating it, but unfortunately it doesn't seem like there's a great deal of cake on the menu. So Akash, the USP of this podcast is about moderation centre ground. In a snap poll from YouGov, which appeared in the Times today, all of all the people they surveyed, twenty seven percent agreed um, that stopping Parliament meeting was acceptable. Not surprisingly, only 9% of Remainers said it, it's acceptable, or perhaps surprisingly, as many as 9%, as 9% of Remainers said it was acceptable, or 51% of Leavers said it was acceptable. Doesn't this just show the, the problem we're having with polarisation of politics and this fixation on the Brexit date and the fact of Brexit means that while both sides believe that they can go for total victory, everyone else is going to get stuck in the middle, getting shot at by both sides to go back to the no man's land analogy. Yes, interesting poll. I, 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 I haven't looked at, looked at those figures, but yeah, even among leavers, as you say, um, only, only 51% say that the suspension of parliament um, is acceptable. Um, 25% not acceptable and yeah the vast majority of, of Remainers say likewise so um, if, if that poll is you know reflects people's deeply held views it may be that the, the government's miscalculated um, as far as its reading of public opinion is concerned who, who knows but um, on the broader point I mean yeah I think it's been a, <laughs> another bad day for um, moderation and, and, and compromise um, in in British politics, I mean, both in terms of both in terms of the potential for an actual compromise. You know, I think this it has uh, today's and recent events have made no deal Brexit more likely, um, and it may be that it's also hardened um, the, the the determination of of people on the other side to try and block. Brexit effectively, and you know we're talking about government and national unity, 
um, as one one possible um, scenario. But it's a funny it's a funny kind of uh, national unity, isn't it? When it will only reflect uh, one side of our of our very divided nation. Hmm. Um, it's quite a nice uh, framing by people advocating it. It's quite a nice label. Um, I don't think it's a very ac- a- accurate one, whether or not it might have merits for other reasons. So I think, yeah, the, pol- the, the current politics are, are very pol- polarised and, and the chances of, uh, of compromise between the two sides are, are quite poor. I mean, and then the, the other side of this, though, um, as we touched upon a little bit at the start of this discussion, is that the state of, of political discourse, um, I think, is really... Is really worryingly polarized, tribal, bitter. I mean, some of the language being used today, as I said, there's kind of references to Nazis and dictatorship and, and coups. Um, on the other side of it, of course, we've, we've previously had people talking about traitors and collaborators and so on. Um, I mean, it's really ugly stuff. I don't. I don't think we're actually on the verge of civil conflict or anything, um, but it does really make me worry about the state of, of, of British politics and British society actually more, more, more generally, um, because, you know, come what may, the country's going to get have to get through this, uh, this issue one way or the other and fairly soon, and then it needs to come back together again, you know, politics is always a bit bitter and, and divisive to some extent, but I do feel there's something deeply wrong with the state of political discourse at the moment. I think this is the problem when you try to address a constitutional question through the lens of culture wars, that Brexit is, whether or not we are part of a trading block or not, a trading block in which some of the major um, players may or may not have pretensions towards national nation-state or supranational state status regardless of whether or not they do it is, an, it is a trading block a trading block because it's a national anthem potentially an army fight but it is still a trading block and whether or not we're part of a free trade area or not is a constitutional question who makes certain aspects of our laws and how our country is governed it is a constitutional question the problem is that it has become a question of identity that far too many people see themselves as righteous and the other side as evil, as morally inferior. I mean, you have quite relatively frequent and utterly ridiculous polling and research into how happy would people be if their child married, went on a date with someone from the other political persuasion. And I mean, this is... uh, highly polarised, very much identity politics around sort of nationalism or patriotism versus, you know, other people calling them racist and xenophobic and stupid and uneducated and um, on all sides. I think this is enormously unhelpful to everyone. So um, that's why we're having this podcast, to try to um, find that, that sense of ground. But Steve, you wanted to come in. Uh, I mean, I couldn't agree more with all of that. Um, the thing I keep wondering about, and I don't know the answer to it, is how much of this is people just losing their heads in this kind of environment? And how, or how much, on the other hand, is it people using polarisation for their own gain? And, and certainly on the political side, you kind of think, 
is actually the kind of is the sort of a crazy morass about fashion containers. It's the kind of stuff that um, the strategists working for assurance want. Because people hearing that who aren't of their view switch off when they hear that kind of language. Yeah. And they think this other side, it's them who are, are extreme. Mm. Um, on the Remain side, maybe maybe they do want to also whip up a kind of feeling of, of um, the, you know, the, a fear that these really are, this really is a fascist-leaning government yeah. or something. Maybe it gets pulled that way. So I, I, want, I do wonder whether people are deliberately using this. My, the, the sort of narrative probably is more that the, the leave side are better at it, better at it and the main side haven't really got a strategy with it and that's more I think what I detect. Yeah. But um, how much is, is is just emotional reaction, how much of this is now part of what is political strategy? Yeah. I don't know. I mean what I suppose one open question of that is whether Corbyn a Corbyn led Labour Party, I would imagine, benefit enormously from the normalisation of what would previously be considered extreme. Like, no mainstream political party, certainly in this country in our history, has ever come close to being as extreme as a Corbyn-led Labour Party would be. You know, um, certainly he's... They have moderated... Him and McDonald's have moderated some of their public image, but the, um, the you know the support for Stalin and Maduro, Chavez, you know they have a history of being on the side of the anti anti democratic sort of dictators. Not that you have democratic dictators, but a number of anti democratic political figures, as well as the the anti semitism and the um, some of the actions of their uh, supporters lower down in terms of bullying. And, in intimidation, so it's possible, of course, that that uh, Corbyn benefits from it by it being normalised. But like you said, the, the way the different sides have approached it, uh, someone in the Times whose name fortunately escapes me wrote that uh, moral and big, uh, moral outrage didn't defeat Trump the first time round, and it seems unlikely it will do so again. It certainly didn't win the referendum for Remain in 2016. It seems unlikely to uh, further sort of centre-left political cause anytime soon, although the, I wonder whether there's an element of the boy that cried wolf with the far left, given that every British Prime Minister has been a fascist since the Socialist Workers' Party was formed, and whenever that was, um, they've said the same thing about everyone, and they just happen to be in charge of the Labour Party now, so... Yeah, uh, well, there's a, yeah, there's a, re- there's a real dilution on yeah. the... Um, the power of terms like mm. racism, fascism, uh, when they get thrown around as liberally and liberally in <laughs> a different sense and uh, inappropriately as as they seem to mm. be at the moment, that's certainly been the case in in America, um, you know, since since 2016, and sadly it seems to be increasingly the case here as well. This podcast that we're running today was hope we hoped was going to be slightly different. In previous podcasts, we've sat down and started off by discussing um, current affairs and the ongoing since the last podcast. This one we said was going to be different. We're going to take a step back and look at some uh, specific issues. Uh, when I woke up this morning and I heard that the Chancellor had confirmed that the spending rounds would be announced in the statement to Parliament on Wednesday the 4th of September, I thought, fantastic, we're going to do a podcast on economics. Unfortunately... Uh, current affairs come at you quite quickly at the moment in breaking stories, so uh, we've had to discuss 
the prorogation of Parliament and some of the issues around that. But Steve, has, polit has politics moved on from austerity? Yeah, thanks, Martin. Um, and yeah, it's good to get to some issues that are kind of more the kind of trend line issues rather than the headlines, even though it's kind of impossible to get the headlines. Um, but I thought I'd actually start with what uh, Javid said today and try and unpack it a bit, because I think that starts to get us into some of the questions about where the mainstream politicians and where the main parties are moving in terms of austerity. And uh, almost in the same breath, he was talking about uh, a sort of 30 billion uh, injection into government departments and public services, uh, and then he said the phrase, but this is no blank check, um, which, which indicated to me that um, on the Tory party side, yes, they, they've moved away from the rhetoric around austerity, but perhaps not, not away completely from um, some of the ideas of that sort of sensible economic management, sensible keeping the budget deficit down, uh, is is a good thing, or at least they're they're sort of fudging on on that uh, interpretation. Um, that's pretty similar to what Theresa May said about austerity. The kind of narrative was, um, we've had this hard ten years, but um, we've come to the other side, and austerity worked. Um, and I think the hope in uh, conservative circles on this is that uh, the the public have had enough of it for now. They don't think the whole idea that government should or the country should live within its means, uh, and indeed that the government should kind of stay out of um, the day-to-day -day running of the economy. Uh, they don't think that idea has completely disappeared. Mm, interesting, and I think something that's really important there is put, um, drawing thread between the Theresa May. Sort of economic approach and the Johnson Jarvis economic approach. So I have here in front of me a piece in today's Sun. Boris Johnson has planned a three and a half billion pound school splurge, including a pay boost for teachers. So it really seems that the the rhetoric we've talked about, the rhetoric of austerity, is pretty much over. I think it's fair to say, and perhaps the reality of austerity is beginning to um, beginning to change, that the, the taps are being turned on. So I, I question whether this is a new type of, or perhaps a new old type of conservative administration, that whether the Thatcherite Tories are, uh, haven't built to some extent, which is very sort of dry as dust on um, Spending, whether we're moving into a new, more pragmatic conservatism, where, um, for whatever reason, whether that's they think it's a good thing or they just are a new government and they want to spend money or make announcements, or whether the public is tired of austerity and can see the um, the impact of the lack of investment sort of over the years. So I think that's going to be an open question. Akash. Yeah, just on, on, on what you were what you were saying about the, the change in politics around all this, I think um, it's this is this is often a um, a cyclical issue as far as uh, both as far as the actual public finances and as far as uh, public opinion uh, towards taxing and, and spending levels are concerned. And um, I mean, the British Social Attitude Survey um, have asked. Um, people going back to 1983, whether they support 
um, higher taxes and, and spending or, 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 or cutting, uh, cutting spending. Um, and there was a crossover, um, according to their data, in sort of 2015, 2016, after about a decade, during which people favoured lower spending. Um, now we have more people favouring um, increasing spending again. So I think the politics do seem to have shifted, and that reflects also, as, as I think you were, you were alluding to, um, the, the, the fact that um, yeah, back in sort of 2008, 2009, uh, 2010, there was a very large deficit and that message from the Conservatives cut through to the voters that it was unsustainable. People were persuaded by that. It was sort of 10% of GDP or whatever and that, that, that couldn't be continued. It's now sort of 2-3% the, the government deficit. We don't need to keep cutting um, for you know, fiscal reasons. And I don't think the public buy a kind of ideological case for just squeezing down the, the size of the state uh, for the sake of it. Yeah, I, mean, I agree with all that, Akash. Um, and that's quite a, a useful kind of framing, because I think that's, the, that's what um, conservatives hope is happening, I think. The, the, they, they, they hope it's just a sort of mild moving away from um, the kind of austerity politics and the, and the broader... Uh, sort of economic consensus that's been around for about 30 years. On the left, however, I think you've got a very different interpretation. I'm not sure how broadly it's shared, but I think their interpretation is that since the 2008 crash and since the kind of subsequent austerity uh, pain of 10 years, there's been a big shift in public opinion away from not just sort of austerity and, and a view about budget deficits and tax and spend, but also about capitalism itself. Mm -hmm. I think the kind of narrative behind uh, Corbyn, Corbynomics, and, and to momentum is that actually needs to be a much more fundamental change. Um, and that is certainly, I think, why Labour want to fight an election, not about Brexit, about, about the economy on the stage. They, they think they can win that argument. Whether that is um, what you were talking about in terms of the, the, the sort of more gradual shift in public um, imp impressions maybe doesn't support this. But they, I think they, can, they think they can win a kind of election that uh, goes back to one of these fundamental shifts that people often talk about, you saw with Attlee and Thatcher. Basically, it's that 30-year shift we're looking at, not just a, a 10 years political move back to a bit more tax and a bit more spend. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, the, the obvious comparison then is with 1997, which obviously prior to that, there had been years of relative uh, underinvestment in, in public services um, and Labour under Blair and, and his predecessors consistently made the case. The public were obviously persuaded by that. Um, and the Labour governments after 97, or at least after 99, dramatically increased public spending, and it was and it was very popular. But they certainly <laughs> weren't talking about radical, you know, restructuring of, of capitalism. It was it was obviously a very different kind of mm. political agenda to your characterisation of, of the Corbyn position. And I'm sure that the Corbynites will be delighted to be compared to the. Uh, 1997 uh, victory. Well, one thing I think we have to, to talk about with that very briefly is how widespread this is. Now, we can we can put some sort of date here as we have done, put some data into this mix. But Corbyn the other day was talking about the bankers' No Deal Brexit and how um, all of the the finances of the 
country are in favour of a no-deal Brexit, uh, to which quite a few people who have some experience of working in financial services sector and banking went, hang on a minute, no, they're all in favour of Remain. Now, Corbyn has a, a habit of making set-piece speeches relying on characterisations. He talked about Boris Johnson being far-right quite recently. And whether there's an element of echo chamber, people, you know, to Corbyn, bankers, you know, are all evil and no-deal Brexit is, whether or not he thinks it's bad, he certainly wants to link these two together as a bad thing. Boris Johnson's right wing, so therefore he's inherently evil and all of this sort of thing. Maybe to Corbyn supporters all of these things are true, but it's also possible that to Corbyn supporters, austerity means that people are sick of capitalism and willing to embrace, depending on which one of them is talking in which minutes, Scandinavian-style social democracy or Venezuelan-style, uh, let's call it states led socialism, let's be generous. Uh, depending on you know, who you talk to, that's uh, what they say. So I do think we have to question whether they're right that people want to see the overthrow of capitalism and complete reform of the economic system, or whether they just want to be able to get a doctor's appointment without having to wait three months for it, and whether they want their kids to be able to go to school without the teachers having to subsidise the equipment and the meals for the kids, and I think those are very, very different things. I think Matthew Goodwin has done some work on this, trying to examine how popular Corbynomics is. Now, his uh, work with others uh, on the 2017 general election showed that Labour appealed to um, sort of lower-income voters' economic concerns, living standards, redistribution, inequality, austerity. And that was actually quite successful, despite the Conservative success in appealing to these same voters' support for Brexit and immigration control. Um, so I think maybe there's public support for more redistribution, potentially more investment, but we shouldn't think yet that this is a sort of carte blanche for um, Corbyn to implement the sort of changes that he wants to see. So, Steve, where is the new sense ground on economics? Um, I mean, it's a massive question, uh, and a good one. I think that where centrists should go kind of depends on the question we talked about a minute ago, is, is that do they kind of agree with the Corbyn critique of capitalism that actually there's some big problems that need to be solved? Or, or do they kind of agree with the way that um, we're assuming that Johnson and Co are thinking about it in, in the sense that the public are a bit fed up with austerity, just need to move, move away from it a little bit. I think if, if it's the, the latter and they just think that um, the public needs to be aware of austerity in the short term, the, the strategy for centre ground and centrist parties might be something like uh, a plague on both your houses, responsible type government in the sense that if you're seeing the, the right get a bit more spendthrift and, uh, sorry, the more free spending and the left also doing something similar, they can kind of criticise both of them for being just economically not competent and, and sort of stick broadly to the kind of um, a sort of soft austerity type line and let's manage the economy sensibly. The more interesting thing is if you're a moderate and you kind of agree with the critique that capitalism in 2019 has got some big problems. What do you do then? Because the only other game in town seems to be the new left, or maybe it's also new, maybe it's the old left, 
Um, do you have to go all the way there, or do you? Sorry. Who is the old or new? Old or new. So I'm thinking new left is kind of like momentum, uh, energy around things like Green New Deal. That's more of a US thing. Um, but uh, those kind of new, sort of new feeling ideas of the younger generation um, uh, being more left wing. Old left ideas are sort of Corbyn and Co. They've been around since the 70s, saying the same stuff. They wanted nationalisations back then. They still want them now. Um, the new left and the old left are kind of hard to distinguish, uh, you know, intellectually for me sometimes. Um, but if you agree with the critique, do you have to share those kind of answers? And I think maybe an interesting thing is, well, if you're kind of a third way person on the economy, where do you can you cast a different answer to um, the left that's also kind of radical? And uh, where to start with that? Where to start with that um, might be something like. Uh, the sort of old language around the equality opportunity, because what you, you tend to have is on the left people talking up equality, on the right it's opportunity and no state interference. Uh, and you may be able to start with some radical ideas that get you to a capitalism that gets to the equality opportunity. Um, that's what I think would be an interesting mm. way to go. Yeah, I would, I'm just going to end with a note of caution around the, um, where the public truly is on this and what that actually means. Looking at the British Social Attitudes survey data, in uh, sorry, in 2010, just over 30% of people supported increases uh, in tax and spend uh, austerity government. In 2015, it was over 40% of people supported, and nearly 50%, in fact. Uh, supported increases to tax and spending. And off the back of the 2015 general election, David Cameron and George Osborne won a majority, which was largely unexpected. So I think we do have to be careful just looking at the numbers and what this actually means. It might be that people agree with Ed Miliband, not dissimilar, uh, sort of case to Corbyn about the, uh, the need to reform capitalism, but that doesn't necessarily mean they would trust them enough to put them into government, which is a very different issue. So, thank you very much, Akash, for trying to explain exactly what's going on at the moment. Done my best. Uh, thank you very much, Steve, for some really interesting stuff there. Thank you very much for listening. This has been the No Man's Land podcast. I'm Martin Rogers. Uh, thank you for listening. Again, please, if you find our uh, outputs interesting and useful, please do share them and make others aware of them. Thank you very much for your time. Goodbye.